I guess what one wants to understand better about what you're saying is whether it's to be understood somehow instrumentally or as a proposal for a fundamental law. As a proposal for a fundamental law, it has a funny form. It has the form, use this algorithm towards the future and it will work. Okay? And we had a bit of this discussion last time. I said, okay, but then the next, nat natural next question, that's not the, the kind of point at which we expect to stop. We want to know what is it about the way the world is that makes this thing work. And I thought that maybe I misunderstood you. You thought that having a metaphysical direction of time was somehow going to be helpful in answering that question. Well, what, so, yeah, I'm getting, I'm, I'm seeing two entirely different questions okay. that you guys somehow see as, as connected. Okay. Let me try and separate them. <laughs> right. Let me try and separate them. Okay. There's the, it has a funny form question. Mm -hmm. um, um, the, I'm, I'm not, the, and there's the, is it just instrumental? I mean, you see those as somehow connected. Yeah, somehow connected. So let's go back again. I mean, let me try and recast this in the way I've been trying to do in the beginning and then see, take your reaction. So suppose you say, look, let me try and generate exactly the same problem about bad retrodictions. Um, not talking about probability measures or whatever, but again, going, going, going way back to my example of the Stossau ansatz. So you say, look, the, the, the ansatz makes a straightforward empirical claim. Mm -hmm. When we put the right epsilonics on it, it's either true or false. Right. You mean and about how many collisions? About how many collisions. And you, you, you can build, you can have a, an ansatz that, that says to the future, and a different ansatz that says to the past, mm -hmm. right? And if you think like me, there's a physical distinction between those. Those are just different physical claims, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. there are nothing, there's nothing that looks particularly instrumental or anything. They're just straightforward, factual claims. Yeah, but they don't, they don't sound fundamental. Uh, well, I'm not sure. So maybe that's what I'm not understanding. Okay. So it is clear. One of, one of the options would, would be to say, okay, you want the extra claim in addition to the dynamics that's doing the explanatory work. Right. It's the forward-directed show solids. Right. My claim is that thing is always true. Right. And I'm not claiming the backward directed one is, and therefore all this problem about bad retrodictions goes away because I don't have a principle that will allow me to make the retrodictions. Yes. Okay. So are, are we happy about that? We're, yeah. we're happy about that. Now, that's not obviously instrumental in any sense. Um, um, it's just, it it's, is, here's a fact in, about the that, universe. That, the, 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 the thought was that that coupled with the claim that I don't know what the explanatory project doesn't go farther back than that, or something like that, feels instrumentalist. That is, if somebody says, "Here's how many collisions there are going to be mm -hmm. of this type over the next ten minutes," mm -hmm. okay, um, it seems like a very natural thought to say, "Gee, that must be." Um, the, the fact that there are going to be that many collisions must be a consequence of some claim about how the world is now. Okay. Okay. And, and, uh, uh, and so if we're looking for the sort of basic foundational claims, it looks like, um, it looks like we'd be disinclined to, to, to elevate to the level of a, a basic foundational claim. Here's how many collisions there are going to be over the next 10 minutes. 
Okay. What's going on in the um, in the in the you know in the now? There's a question, and we're going to discuss this question today and next week and so on and so forth about what it means to talk about a probability distribution right. over That's initial right. conditions and so on. But put that aside for a moment. For, for the moment, the reason for even beginning to talk about such a thing or asking if one can coherently talk about such a thing is that it is that Somebody saying, here's how many collisions there are going to be over the next 10 minutes seems very naturally to prompt the question of the form, gee, in virtue of what feature about the way the world is right now, okay. is that why they're going to be, is it the case that they're going to be right. I mean, collisions over the next 10 minutes? Right. Um, whereas, well, but you seem to be, so maybe I'm just misinterpreting you. It sounded like you were saying, um, Particularly given given your metaphysical um, direction of time, you have the option of positing something like the Stossel Ansatz toward the future as basic, as fundamental, yes. as the place where, where where the project of explanation is naturally going to come to an end. Okay, that's intention. Now you may just disagree with what I said. You may just disagree with the claim that this naturally prompts a question about what it is about the present condition. No, okay, so let's just, uh, so again, I think this is why, this is why I, I think now I'm absolutely clear that we're just talking <laughs> at cross purposes. Okay. In fact, part of what I'm going to do when I talk about typicality is, is actually make the ansatz itself not fundamental, but embedded in a larger okay. kind of explanatory Good. scheme. Good. So, so, and you say, well, I, I understand why the ansatz holds by a typicality argument. Good. The, the main thing I was pointing out was, was the question, are you forced, right, are you forced back by a certain worry? Right. And the worry is that we have a gadget that works really well in one direction and really crummy in the other. Right. right? And, and you feel, okay, should I endorse the gadget or not? And you say, well, I really want to endorse it because no. it does so well this way, and no. I really don't want to endorse it. And one way out of that is, you know, one way out of that, as I said, is to, is to say the gadget only applies where there's only one future, the future from it. The other way is to say, sure. well, you but, adjust the gadget, and then you don't have that particular problem. But, but I think that's a misunderstanding of the motivations. The motivations have an additional feature. Um, it's not just, is there a way to avoid being forced back? Okay, it's it's it, it, that, that is we're having this we're, we're getting forced back in the context of a foundational discussion in the context of looking for ultimate explanatory principles of the world. So just to say we can imagine a gadget which is going to work correctly if we can avail ourselves of this, which is going to work correctly to make predictions if we can avail ourselves of this direction of time, isn't isn't. Um, um, isn't coming to grips with the pressure that, that we were feeling in that earlier discussion. Um, now, so let me just add, suppose there were no first moment. Right. Then there, the, I, I don't think the pressure would then, change much. There would, that's there would what be, I'm wondering. I mean, yeah, there would be a claim, as far as I can see, there would be a claim. I mean, this is the kind of thing Boltzmann thought. There's some, there's some, you know, what, it, it turns out to be a principle of statistical mechanics, that there was a moment 15 billion years ago when the entropy was very low, and roughly this was the oh, first day. You could imagine a theory where that isn't true either. You can, you can certainly imagine such a theory. Right, like a steady state theory. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. You know. Let's see, no, in a theory like that, there were moments when the entropy was 
and the pants to entropy was lower. It was always lower. Yeah, no, no, that's right. But there's no initial time to appeal to. No, no, I mean, I said, well, yeah, if there isn't, if there isn't, let's see how that would work. If there isn't an initial time, not only in the sort of physical or metaphysical sense, but even in an epistemic sense, that is, in some sense, we can look back as far as we like, we can get information about as far back as we like. That's a good question. I have to think about how a scheme like that would look there. That's a good question. That's a good question. But is that supposed to answer my question? No, that was just supposed to... You say there's a funny kind of thing, because I feel like I'm being characterized in a way that I want to characterize, but this is okay, we all want to throw a lot at each other, as saying, oh, you're just proposing some kind of practical scheme, and that doesn't count as a physical explanation. It might be, as it were, a scheme that gives you perfectly good advice for how to form your expectations, but it doesn't constitute a physical explanation of something. And one thought is that to complete this explanation, you sort of have to have this first principle, and the first principle would have to be, if you're doing things in a certain way, a reference to this initial moment of time. Maybe you don't believe that. I'm not sure if I'm... Part of the question is, what are the standards for something being a physical explanation as opposed to merely... But we aren't so much throwing mud at each other. Let's elucidate your view. I'm sure mine is just as bad. Let's elucidate your view first. If somebody says, here's how many collisions there are going to be, do you or do you not... Do you or do you not feel a pressure to answer a further question about what it is about the present state of the world in virtue of which it's the case that that's how many collisions there are? And maybe this is... So you've been stating the content of the ansatz in a way that strikes me as being... Suggesting this question in a way that's not quite appropriate. So it's not that the ansatz, as it were, the content of the ansatz is ever, there will be 12 collisions in the next five minutes. I mean, it's a way of calculating from the present macro state. So there's something about the present that goes into the application of the naming of the present macro state. It's telling you, given the present macro state, that the micro state has a feature... No, I think this is helpful. So the whole discussion is about how we get from the macro state... And your intuition is, there's no place to get. It's just, once you've said the present macro state, it's obvious that this is how many... I don't even know what the right word is. Once you've said the present macro state, there's nothing else to say. There's nothing else that needs to be said in order to get to the conclusion. There's something to be said. What's to be said is, you have the present macro state. We agree that leaves unsettled the exact micro state. We agree that among the unsettled micro states that are consistent with it are ones that will behave badly. The ansatz, as it were, articulates a feature that the micro state has to have in order for the future to go the way we think it's going to go. Or at least implies it will go the way we think it has to have. 
Okay, but yeah, all right. Yeah. So if you ask, what's it telling me about the present state? Yeah, yeah I get it. Okay, no, no, no. That. I, I think you sort of answered the question. Good. And and yeah. and then there's this additional piece that I've been insisting all along that what it's telling you about the present microstate is of the right kind of form that the obtaining of that doesn't seem to demand further explanation, right. and the failure of attaining of it would. Right. Um, and and that's what just, I've been doing. Let me ask one more question, and this is just meant, I think, to invite you to say what you were planning to say yeah. anyway. But so last time, so last time I was expressing puzzlement about where it is you think the, the need to search for explanations gives out, and I said, gee, there are plenty of unsurprising things which we think it's appropriate to explain, and you said the relevant thing isn't unsurprising. The relevant thing isn't surprise, it's puzzlement. And, uh, and I was trying to get a clearer picture of what the difference between those two was and so on and so forth. And I said, look, I come in a room and sit in a chair and it doesn't turn into an elephant. Right. Um, um, don't I want an explanation of that? And your answer seemed to be no. That is, you said, gee, if we go across the street to the physics department and ask them about chairs turning into elephants, I don't think they're going to have anything to say. Um, is that, because that really does diverge from, so, so is it really the case that, for example, if somebody says, somebody raises their hand in physics class and says, why don't chairs turn into elephants when you sit on them? The answer is that's not an appropriate question for physics? I, well, yeah, I mean, I have to get back to understand how we got, I remember the conversation, okay. I remember how it came about. Okay. I mean, it is, of course... Not the kind of question, I mean, I think we would agree. It's not, not the kind of question you would immediately quite understand what, well, I mean, what would satisfy them. I mean, what, what, what is the, what is the if issue? If the person asks this question, question, it bodes ill for their grade. I mean, you'd, you'd be likely to, to say, what makes you think it might do that? Because if you, if you sort of understood what... No, but why couldn't, the guy, why couldn't the guy, without going into all this psychology, just say... Oh, or, or at least here's what I picture him doing. Now, I, I know this isn't what you picture him doing, but I picture him, him, him saying, oh, you know, I, we can easily calculate from the calculus the probability that it turns into an elephant, and it's very low. That's why it doesn't no, turn into but, an but elephant. What would be wrong? I'm not sure. Some, some kid comes up to me, and I, as long as I answer this, I'm in the physics bar, I say, well, look, there's this principle, fundamental principle of physics called the conservation of mass. There ain't enough mass in that chair to make an elephant. That can't turn into an elephant. There's another principle called the conservation of charge. Something like a shape of an elephant. Right? Something like the shape of an elephant. You know. But, okay, all of these are fine. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Because I don't know which one is getting at what was bugging the guy. I'm not That's Yeah, but we don't even need to know that. We can just give a full demonstration, okay, that given the fundamental laws and given the state of the room when you walked in, okay, um, um, the chair turning into an elephant is either impossible if you mean a real full mass elephant or extremely unlike. Why, why would we? Why would we need well, to why, bother with the guy's psychological? Why side? would we talk? I mean, look, look. Let's be momentarily realistic. Um, Here's the thing a physicist could perfectly do well and not feel at all worried about. Mm -hmm. He says, you say, look, um, David's going to come in and sit on this chair. What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. And we all agree that we more or less know, and this is real physics, right. what the tools are by which he would say, well, you know, 
again, he's going to describe your macro state, macro state of charity. He's going to do all this stuff. He's going to say, see, this is what's going to happen. Now, you can look at that result and then point out, although it's not quite clear why you would particularly point this out, and say, by the way, that thing, it's not an element. And we all agree that that's a perfectly good physical explanation. But then I'm – but – okay. But I'm not sure where we are. I'm not sure quite what the issue is. Well, I'm not sure where we are. Like I say, and maybe this is just – I'm sure this will resurface in what you're about to say, and I'll let you say that right now, I promise. I'm just – there was – so contrast to scientific aspirations, okay? One, we want a full and explicit explanation of everything, okay? Now, some of the explanations may be trivial. Why is F equals MA true? Because it's a fundamental law. Why is there something rather than nothing? It's a brute fact, okay, or something like that. But there are going to be some set of principles, okay, from which everything – some set of principles that we can make explicit, okay, from which everything follows, okay? Now, you seem to have a different – somebody says, oh, that's what I'd like, okay? You seem to be saying you shouldn't want that. That's bad. There are certain moments where you have something short of this logical entailment, but where nonetheless you should stop. Yeah, okay. So this is getting very close. I mean, this is something we should talk about. So – and again, just correct me if what I'm saying is wrong. I'm going to try and summarize some things you just said. You said one of our aspirations is to explain everything. Some of that – yeah. I mean, some of that, like I say, turns out to be trivial, so on and so forth. Well, then you said – so there might – some of the explanations might be trivial, like it's a brute fact. I'm not sure what the difference is between saying it's a brute fact and saying there's no explanation. You seem to be saying – saying the words it's a brute fact constitutes an explanation, but a trivial one. I would say there is a – that's, as it were, saying this is where the explanatory – No, because we have – because we have – I mean, I'm not going to be prepared to spell this out in the way I should have been raising the issue, but there are going to be criteria about what kinds of things you expect to have to admit as brute facts and what kind you don't. You know, it may be, say, in the Newtonian context that the theory shows you how you have to admit the number of particles in the universe as a brute fact or something like that, and you have to admit F equals MA as a brute fact and so on and so forth. But you aspire to be able to derive everything else from those or those plus some other stuff or something like that. One of the things you don't expect to have to take in as a brute fact is, say, claims about how many collisions there are going to be or even claims about how many collisions there are going to be given the macro spin. So somebody with my kind of aspirations wouldn't be happy with somebody saying now the explanation is done. Once we go from 
the information about the macro states of the information. Okay, so right, and again, I get. I mean, this is now just recapitulation. I mean, there are a couple points made. One is, I did try to make an argument. I'm going to try and embed this in yet a larger enterprise. But to go to the argument so far, it was given the present macro state and only that we understand the arguments that Boltzmann and Maxwell went through that led them to conclusions about how the thing would evolve. That depended on applying the ansatz. And at the end of the day, the content of the ansatz had to do with the statistical independence of this set of particles from this set of particles in position. So that was the principle. So we agree, if you give me that, I now have, as it were, a derivation and an explanation. Yes. So now we can ask, is that a kind of reasonable, broody kind of thing? What I've been arguing, what they sort of took it to be, obviously, was that it was. Right, that's right. And it seems to be kind of an okay-looking thing. Now, I might be able to do better than that. But if I were stuck there, I wouldn't be too unhappy. Okay. Unlike saying, oh, here's a brute fact. There will be 18 collisions over the next five minutes. That looks like the kind of story to tell about. But this is the story that they tell. And the principle that gets you back is the statistical independence principle. Right. Okay. What's the good? I mean, I'm sorry. I keep extending this. I won't extend this anymore. I remember this twist in the discussion, too. And then there was a question. Suppose you were to spell out this independence principle in full generality. How different is it going to be from these probabilities? Right. And that's a very good question. And it's a good question even what it means to spell it out in full. Right. In full generality when you're not doing the boxes of gas. That's right. So one possibility is that this is a really good explanatory structure they had, but it's very constricted. It has nothing like your grand, general, huge, you know, it's going to cover everything-ish to it. Now, you might think, no, there are ways to generalize this. There are obvious ways that you can deal with other cases in an analogous way. And it might be an open question how far that goes. It might make you happy to think that the Big Bang state was a big box of gas. So that's one thing about that particular state that you might think, well, gee, even if I just restrict it to boxes of gas, there was a time when the whole universe was a big box of gas. And if I can run it then, you know, then that will have a certain effect. Okay. Good. Good, good, good. Okay. I think we're—go ahead. I'll shut up. Okay. So I guess because, you know, I always in my mind think there are a bunch of things I want to do and then I never get to any of them. But the main one is to try and lay out, because Barry's going to come next week and start talking about the Lewisian approach to this, is to lay out this competitor kind of approach of what we call typicality explanations. And to try and draw some contrast between—formal contrast between what goes into a typicality explanation and what goes into the kind of explanation or derivation that fits David's model where you have the past hypothesis and the statistical hypothesis and use that. Now, you know, there may be—as we go along, let me just say, anticipating, I'm going to draw the contrast starkly 
as starkly as I can, it may be that David's going to, as it were, concede some ground this way, and I'm going to concede some ground that way, and at the end of the day, you might say there's not that much difference between these two positions. And that might be correct. I think this is something we've never quite settled, just as what we just now did. How much can I expand from this thing outward? Okay. Now, before I talk about the way I want to start, I want to start just doing a tiny bit of technical mathematical stuff, partly because it's relevant, but partly because it's also the kind of thing that will keep your head clear. So we've been talking a lot about putting a probability measure, a probability measure over the space of possible initial conditions for the universe. So the idea was the past hypothesis is a macro state. It restricts the precise micro conditions that occur at a certain time. And then how we deal with that restriction of not knowing the exact thing is putting a probability measure. So let me just talk for a minute about what a probability measure is, because I'm going to end up talking about something which does not have – this thing has a perfectly good exact mathematical definition. I'm going to at the end talk about something that doesn't have a perfectly exact clear mathematical definition, and you can get mad about that, and it's a reasonable thing to get mad about. It's something that – but it's important to see, to understand that and see the difference between these approaches. So what's a probability measure? Well, let's start with what's a measure. So this is just a mathematical notion. I have – suppose I have – a measure should be some kind of mathematical representation of how big things are. And your first thought – and again, this is all just technical stuff, but just because you might come across it. Your first thought is suppose I have a set of points. So suppose I have some set of points – I don't know – some set of points PI. It doesn't matter if they're numerable or not. And so from this set of points, there's a power set. So that's just the set of all subsets, right? Set of all subsets of my set. And you might say what I really like is a measure that tells me for any subset how big it is, and maybe how big it is in relation to other subsets. So you might think what I really want out of a measure is some way of assigning numbers to all the subsets where those numbers convey how large a subset that is. That's what you want. You're not going to get it. So the first point – and this is just a technical point – in normal cases, that is, there's one case where you'll get this. If you have a finite set – if this set is finite, then there's a natural measure on it. There are other measures too, but there's a natural measure, which is the counting measure. And it just assigns to each subset the integer that counts the number of elements in it. So that's fine. And obviously in that case, the measure does assign a number to every subset. But as soon as you get into infinite sets, and as soon as you get in particular into sets of points in a space where the space can have certain symmetry properties, what you discover is that there just are not going to be any measures that do what you want and also assign numbers to every possible subset. 
Okay? So what do I mean by do what you want? So suppose, for example, let's take the simple case. Let's take the real line, which you can think of as, you know, you can think of the set of all real numbers, and you can think of this as a model of a one-dimensional geometrical space, right? A kind of, it's got uncountably many points, but you also think there's a kind of translational symmetry to it, especially if you think of it as a Euclidean line, right? Don't worry about it being the number line, but think of it as a Euclidean line. It has a kind of translational symmetry to it. And so what you would expect is if I have some, some set of points over here, and it gets assigned some number, right? It gets a measure. And then I just move it. I translate all of these points a fixed amount that the translated guy should get the same measure. Right? They're just moving the set of points, all the points, in equal amount in one direction or the other. The measures shouldn't change. Right? If it did that, you wouldn't quite know what the hell was going on. You wouldn't say that's not the right kind of measure. Right? Is everybody clear about that condition? Or suppose I have a three-dimensional space, like you know, three-dimensional Euclidean space. Take a set of points, assign it a measure. Now rotate, right? perform a rotation around some axis. Your thought is, I would really like the measure of that set of points not to change. Right? That the, the rotated points ought to have the same measure as the original top. Because if it didn't, you'd be really positive. You'd say, look, you know, you know, Euclidean space has this rotational symmetry, it has this translational symmetry, and so the measures ought to also have these rotational and translational symmetries. Okay? Now, what it turns out is that if you demand that, then there are no non-trivial measures that will cover that will cover all the subsets. And this leads to things like the Bonnet-Karski paradox. Everybody's heard about this stuff. I don't want to, I'm not going to go through any examples. But you just have to trust me that, in fact, no measure, no non-trivial measure, right? I could assign, for example, a measure zero to all the sets. And oh, by the way, what do I mean by measure? I'm assigning a number here to each subset. What kind of number? Well, it's sometimes called R plus, which is actually um, all, all non-negative, I guess, I don't know, but the plus is something different. All non-negative uh, reals, so it could be zero, plus something like positive infinity. Because you want to say, suppose I'm putting a measure on Euclidean space, on three-dimensional Euclidean space, right? A kind of normal-looking measure that's supposed to give you the volume of some points, right? Some collection of points. Well, clearly, you think, what's the volume of all of Euclidean space is infinite? What's its volume? Its volume is infinite. So if I want my measure to assign something to the entire set, and I do, then I have to add you know, it's not a number. You add this thing positive infinity. Okay? So you might have thought, gee, there must be some way in Euclidean space to, as it were, assign a volume to every subset of points. And the answer is, and it's just, you know, just mathematically, provably impossible, unless it's trivial. Like, I could assign zero to every subset, or I could assign positive infinity to every subset. That would be okay, but obviously it's completely uninformative. and is isn't what I was trying to get at. Okay? So what do you do? Well... You say, okay, there's go, there actually has to be a special, there's going to be a special collection of subsets that get assigned a number. Those are called the measurable sets. And they're not, what, what we were just saying is that in these cases, not all set will be measurable, so it'll be unmeasurable sets. 
what do the collection of, me of, of measurable sets have to satisfy? Well, they have to, they have to form a sigma algebra, which means if I have two measurable sets, their intersection is measurable. If I have two sets, their union is me two measurable sets, their union is measurable. And importantly, it, 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 it satisfies something called countable additivity, right? Which is, which is that not only is this true, I just said for a pair, their intersection is measurable. If I just say that, that would give me all fin a finite number of intersections, right? Because I can keep intersecting in one more, but not an infinite number. So for countable additivity, you say take any countable set, right? Take any countable collection of measurable sets, their union will be measurable on their intersection. Okay? So that's that's the sigma algebra, and what a measure does is it assigns a number to every element of the sigma. Okay? Well, that's a well-defined mathematical gadget. That's a measure. What's a probability measure? Okay, so we've been talking about probabilities, and this, this, the whole point is to somehow embed all of this physics into a kind of probabilistic reasoning or statistical reasoning. What's a probability measure? Well, the answer is a probability measure is just a measure, satisfies all the conditions for a measure, but also the total measure assigned to the entire space is one, you normalize it. Right? You can't do that for, say, Euclidean three-dimensional space, you can't normalize it, because as it were, its natural measure is infinity. But, you know, now the point I'm making with all this is so there's a, you say I isn't there a measure of of area of this that you can put over the top of this table that'll tell me you know that that this little bit is smaller than that bit right I just picked out a bunch of points here and I picked out a bunch of points here and those are both measurable sets and I want my measure to tell me oh you know this guy is eight times as large as that guy so I want my measure to assign the number you know a number to this guy that's eight times as big as the number assigned to that guy. You say, well, you can do that, just measure in square inches. Turns out, uh, it turns out that the table is not one square inch, so that's not a probability measure. But obviously, I can whatever that measure is, I can renormalize it. And bang, it's now a probability measure, officially. The po first one I want to make is, that doesn't mean it has anything intuitively to do with the probability of anything, <laughs> okay? It doesn't. What I just gave you was an area measure. Right? It's not about the probability of anything. And the reason I want to insist on this is that it sort of runs through the, 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 the physics literature that people say, oh, look, I've got a probability measure, ergo, I've got a probability. Or I've got a probability measure, ergo, there's no nothing standing in the way of interpreting it as a probability or something like that. And that's just completely wrong. Right? It's true that if you actually have a probability, something you want to call a probability, it will be a probability measure. But it's not true the other way around, that just because something's a probability measure, right, that there's any reasonable way to interpret it as a probability of anything happening. And you can sort of, because all you're doing is normalizing some finite measure. Right? How does that work for a probability? Okay. So that's just, I, I just wanted to make that comment. Now, what kind of things do we want to explain? Right? So we have, on the one hand, this picture that the complete 
We're just going to deal here with deterministic dynamics. We can have an indeterministic dynamics that has transition chances built into it. It wouldn't change the basic picture much of what we're going to do. And it would be kind of obvious how to adjust this to that. It's better to deal with the deterministic dynamics both because it's just simpler and more importantly because the puzzle in the back of your mind ought to be, wait a minute, if the world's deterministic, what do you mean by the probability of something happening? If the world's deterministic, what do you mean by the probability if I throw this dice, die, it'll land four because it either will or it won't and that's determined by when you throw it. What do you mean it couldn't? Then you get into what? You mean it could have landed differently? Does that mean nothing? Okay. So we all agree, we're going to agree here that the complete micro description plus the laws will give us a perfect prediction. And then the question is, okay, but somehow or other, statistical mechanics is a way of taking these dynamical laws and treating them in some different way so that what you get out are rather interpreted as somehow probabilities. What is it we're trying to explain with that? Well, so what is the data what is the data that a probabilistic explanation, whatever that means, has to account for? And so what is, you know, we're doing this, we're going to get some kind of probability, something that will satisfy the conditions of a probability measure or something like that. What is it we're doing? And the answer is, we're trying to explain our empirical distributions. And empirical distributions are just frequencies, right, frequencies of actual events. In some reference class. Okay. So as the first day of class, I had this box of dice, and you shake it up, and you can now talk about the frequency with which six came up after the box was shook. You can do that even after one shake, because there were enough dice. If there was only one die in the box, the frequency in that case obviously would have been one or zero. And then it's not quite clear how any of this probabilistic rigmarole is going to come in to help you with that. But at least you can start to see how if you've got an empirical distribution that has a frequency in it, right, frequencies are going to satisfy the conditions for a probability measure, right? Frequencies, if I have a bunch of different, if I have a sample space, a bunch of different events, and I generically divide them up, like I have a bunch of dice throw, and I group them into the ones that come up one, the ones that come up two, and so on, and I assign, then in a particular case, I throw the dice a thousand times, and now I have a frequency assigned to the outcome one, a frequency assigned to the outcome two, and so on. Those frequencies, those will just be numbers, right? And there'll be a probability. There'll be a probability measure. Because the frequency in which something or other happens is one. And if you have disjoint, the other thing about a measure, if you have disjoint sets, I forgot to say that, if you have disjoint sets, the measure of the union ought to be the sum of the measures. 
So if I, you know, if this, the sets don't overlap at all, the size of the union ought to just be the sum of their sizes. That's, I should have said that, right? That's essential to a measure, and therefore for a probability measure. So you say, look, the frequencies, the empirical frequencies, just because they're frequencies, they are, you know, that set of numbers will be a probability measure. Good. The claim is, this is the thing we want to explain. And, you know, to automatically, to, 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 again, just sort of focus in on differences of, of emphasis, David wants to say, look, the metaculus is completely and totally non-agnostic. It's not agnostic about anything. You ask it any question, any articulable question, doesn't have to be about a frequency, right? It could be about a single event, or you know, yeah, trivial frequency, if you will, one or zero. Okay, ask it anything. The magic eight ball will, you know, a number will pop up out of it. <laughs> and even if that's only one event in the whole history of the universe, the number doesn't have to be one or zero. Okay? So from this point of view, you already might be a little puzzled. Because you might say, wait a minute, I don't know what to do exactly with this number one. That's, that's not one or zero, because the event either happens or it doesn't, and that's all there to say about it. How can that number either well represent or poorly represent what happened? Yes? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get really deep into what we're doing here. It's like, it's, you know, I mean, you can just ask, you've got, two, you've got two, two competing weather guys, and one guy says, you know, today there's a 30% chance of rain, and the other guy says, no, no, today there's a 40% chance of rain. And you know, you don't a little puzzle you what the heck's going on if they only ever made this one prediction and you look outside, it either rains or it doesn't. <laughs> okay? It's not like the 30% guy can in some sense have gotten it better as a description of what happened in the world than the 40% guy, right? Whereas if they make predictions about you know a bunch of different days. Then, and there's a frequency, the frequency could be nearer to 30 or nearer to 40. And you now feel like I have a sense of what these numbers are doing. Okay. Now the question is, so the, the, the target are empirical distributions, which are frequencies. They have a certain structure. What is it to give a statistical explanation of them? Right? Now, and to what extent does that explanation, and now the real bone of contention, to what extent would such an explanation depend upon a probability measure being put over the space of initial conditions, the way David wants to suggest? Right, so what I'm going to do is just sketch a way to see that that's not really what's doing the work. Something more generic is doing the explanatory work than a probability distribution. Now, I'm just going to go through, I mean, I did this in this paper, and this is just stolen from Detlef-Durr, so don't give me any credit for it. Uh, but it's a nice example. So it's the, the, the Quinn folks, right, the Dalton board example. David talked about this in, with his ice cubes. Um, let's just talk about it. Okay, so the idea is I have this set of, of, of pinboardy things. I, add, I, I describe this physically. And it's important that it also have certain symmetries, right? All these pins have to be exactly placed at the right points, and all the pins are exactly cylindrical. Right? You better not have pins that are, you know, that are have asymmetries like that in them. And you, you're imagining perfectly round 
BBs or whatever, and you say, gee, suppose, suppose I drop a BB from up here somewhere. What should I expect? Right? What would be, what do I think? The physics, now I have some physics here, right? The physics is in the complete physical description of the board, the complete physical description of the ball, the complete physical description actually of everything except in this case, and let's even imagine when I say drop the ball, just to make things simple, when I say drop the ball, I mean that the, the velocity is zero at time, right? The velocity at time zero is zero, so I've nailed that down. And the, the basic thing I haven't nailed down is exactly where I drop it from. I just say, go up to the top and let it go. What should I expect, or what do I think physics could explain? Or what, 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 what could, you know? And imagine in this case, just because, I, I, you know, this is a, obviously an idealization. Imagine the thing is infinitely long. There are an infinite number of rows. Okay, so part of you says, God knows, anything could happen. I mean, it could, you know, if, if, if intuitively you think, well, I'm going to treat each, each time the ball hits a pin, I'm going to treat it as if, even though it's a deterministic dynamics, I'm going to treat it as if a really random choice is made with a 50-50 chance right, to go right or left. And if I do that, then I'm going to get a probability distribution over the possible, well, not if it's infinitely long, but make it long. Right, I'm going to get a probability distribution over all the possible paths, right? all the possible sequences of right left. But you say, but wait a minute, where is this 50% coming from? That was the thing I want to explain. I have a deterministic dynamics. It's, there's not a 50% chance when I actually drop the ball that it does this or that in any sense. You know, in some sense, once I've dropped it, the laws of physics, you know, the iron rails of destiny are going to carry it down whatever path it goes down. So what is the nice way? So you might say, well, God knows anything. It could go all the way this way. It could go all the way that way. For any tap through here, it could take any of those. You know, that's not much advice. It tells me it doesn't turn into an elephant. Okay? Now, here's something you can actually do, where by actually do, I mean you can't actually do it. <laughs> here's something that in principle you could do, but in practice you can't do. Okay? What we're assuming is that in principle, if I specify an exact location here, the dynamical laws would then map that to an exact trajectory, right? In fact, the way these things work is going to be a very, I mean, these things, they actually bounce around. This looks much too nice. They actually bounce around and vibrate and do all this kind of stuff, which leads to a very chaotic-looking dynamics. But the assumption of the determinism is that for every, every exact initial condition here, there's going to be some precise thing going there. Yes? For each precise trajectory, there's a fact about whether it goes right or left in every pin, and therefore, there's a fact about whether there's a limiting frequency of going to the right and going to the left. Okay? There doesn't have to be. So it could go once to the right, then twice to the left, then four times to the right, then eight times to the left, etc. And, you know, that just won't have a limit. That that sequence won't live. Keep vibrating. Okay. 
the frequency won't settle down. But one thing that can happen is that the frequency actually does have a limit. Right? It could be the limit's one. Maybe if it bounces all the way down this side, the limit's one. Here, you know, one to the left, and here it's one to the right. So one thing that can happen is it does have a frequency. And the other thing that can happen is, is that it li the, the frequency limits. And then you can ask what the limit is, if it has one. Okay? Now, suppose, here's what we believe. So when I say you can't actually calculate that, that's what I mean. But let's suppose, here's what we believe, and you can give good plausibility arguments for believing this. Suppose I paint, suppose I take the following property. Limit has a limit frequency of a half. That is, a trajectory that in the long term, in the limit, half the time it bounces to the right when it hits a pin, and half the time it bounces to the left. Again, we have an empirical distribution here. We have an actual frequency. There's no puzzle about what 0.5 here means because it's an actual count, right? It's an actual empirical distribution of bounces, okay? Now, if there's a limit frequency, now, since, since every possible initial state leads either to no limit frequency at all or to some limit, and if it does lead to a limit, it actually has a number, I could go and paint if I had a different color, it would be nice here. I could go in for all these possible initial positions. I could say paint it red if it leads to a trajectory with a limit frequency of 0.5. Okay? Yeah. The limit frequency you're talking about is for a specific row and a specific position? No. Right. It is the limit for a single infinite trajectory of right bounces to left bounces. How many times, right, take a ball and keep track of the frequency at every row, how many times has it gone right as opposed to left? And take that limit. I'm putting, making it infinite and taking the limit so you get an exact number here, right? I mean, again, it might not, there might not be such a limit. There, there are trajectories for which there's no limit. They just vibrate in a way that doesn't be. Good. Okay? Now, here's a piece of just technical terminology. Let's, let's say that a behavior, and it's very important to see what is the, the grammar of this, a physical behavior is typical if it only is. In this case, okay, it's typical if it only is. The set of initial conditions that yield that behavior, because we now say the behavior will be determined once I nail down the initial condition. Has measure has measure one. Now, what ought to jump out at you is you ought to say, wait a minute, what measure? What do you mean measure one? Okay? What the hell do you mean measure one? Now, don't I need a measure? Now I need a measure of the space of initial states to make sense of this. Okay? And you might say, where does that measure come from? What's special about that measure? Then you might say, oh, use a flat probability distribution. Or here's a measure. Use a flat probability distribution over a certain limited region. Where the idea is you now say, this as it were represents the notion that the ball could have started anywhere from here to here, right? I don't imagine the ball 
could have started out over here. When I say drop it from the top, you better not go over here and drop it. Okay? And I put a flat measure that is a measure that's proportional to the normal, the normal uh, length measure here. I put a flat measure on it. That would sort of represent the idea that it's equally likely that you drop it you know, on the, over here or over here. Now, it's clear that if I, if I put such a measure on the space of initial states, then this is a perfectly well-behaved definition, and it defines typical behavior. Does everybody right. notice there is no typical behavior for what a ball does when it hits a particular point? Right? If you ask, but typically what happens is there something typical about what happens when a, when a ball reaches, say, row four? The answer is no, nothing typically happens. Because there's no behavior there that happens for a set of measure one. Tim, I yes. just, if the array of pins is finite, yes. then on this definition, there's no typical behavior. That's right. If the row, right, well, well, but, but I'm doing this because it's cleaner, and then we'll talk about the epsilons. Okay. That you do to deal with finite. Okay. Okay. okay, I mean, that's the way I have it laid out in the paper. Okay. I mean, it just makes it conceptually clear. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by behavior here? So, what do I mean by behavior? I mean, any, any characterization, right? I mean, think of anything you can say about a trajectory. So, bouncing left is often bouncing right is an example of a behavior. Yeah. Yes. Right. Bounce, look, bouncing left at pin four is a behavior. Because if I give you the trajectory, you can just answer the question did it do that? But there is no typical behavior for how it how it reacts at pin four by this definition. Okay. Now, the fact that what we think is a mathematical fact is that in that in the in this scenario, a limit frequency of 0.5 is typical in the sense I just strictly defined. Okay. Limit as the number of rows goes to infinity. Limit as the number of rows goes to infinity. Right. 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 That if I imagine the limit as the number of rows goes to infinity, there are bad trajectories in the sense of trajectories that have, you know, that always go to the right, always go to the left, and don't limit at all. But with respect to this measure, the set of ones that do that is a measure zero. And the set of ones that do this is a measure one. And that, that now remember, this is a fact about these big empirical distributions. But that that fact illuminates what we might mean when we say, gee, the ball will have a chance of 0.5 when it hits that pin. Right? When it hits an individual pin, what do I mean when I say, gee, it has a 50-50 chance of going right or left? Because we said, what does that mean? I mean, it's a deterministic system. Yeah. This is a, clearly a nearby, well-defined fact. Assume we assume it's true. This is, I mean, what Demuth would say is, is we are infinitely far away from being able to prove this. Why? Because these trajectories are chaotic. Okay, it, you, you couldn't even calculate a single one of these trajectories actually, because they're much too sensitive to the exact initial position. Right? If you if you change your initial location by any finite amount, eventually 
the trajectory you get will be arbitrarily different in a certain sense than the one you started with. Okay, so actually calculating this stuff is just an impossibility. But you have various symmetry arguments and so on that lead you to very, very rationally and firmly expect that, in fact, this is true. Okay? So let me just pause here. Everybody's followed me so far. Maybe say more about what you mean by nearby to the... Oh, in what I just said? Yeah. All I meant was, you know, if you start out here, you say drop it from this precise location, and now the dynamics will give me a path through here, right? By nearby, all I meant in what I just said was, now take take another location that is that is arbitrarily. No, I don't know. Oh, you mean giving the trajectory? No, she meant we you referred to a nearby fact that 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 you, you said. Ah. What do we mean by? Uh, what do we mean by the probability of bouncing off of this? Right. Oh, 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 right. You said, well, there's a nearby. Yeah, so near, look, all I meant by nearby is here's here's a fact about about balls bouncing off of pins in this device it nearby that has board. 0.5. <laughs> right, that, 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 as it were, has attached to it the number 0.5. The very number that you somehow wanted to use to characterize the chance when it hit any individual pin of it going right or left. That's all I meant. We've got the same number. Yes, we have the same number. Okay. Doesn't seem like it's necessarily very important. Um, can I can I actually say something here? I, I, this is well. Can I say something? What? Whose permission did I just ask? <laughs> um, out of complete coincidence, just because this is nice, I, I happen to be teaching Hume's treatise, which I haven't read for you. I happen to be treating it. And when I was preparing for today, I got Hume talks about probability here, and, he, and he's talking about how you form. Suppose you want to assign a kind of probabilistic prediction to an individual event. Okay? In this case, a ship is going out to sea, and you want to form an expectation for it coming safely back. An individual ship, right? The one ship you care about. So we have just an individual event. The actual frequency in the world is either going to be one or zero, right? <laughs> I mean, it either comes back or it doesn't. Those are the only possibilities. And here's what Hume said. And I think this is nice, because this will illustrate the point I'm trying to make, but also what I mean by nearby. He says, um, if our intention, therefore, he's going to say, somehow, this judgment we make about this ship is going to be based on our experience of ships, right? On an empirical distribution. How is it based? He says, if our intention, therefore, be to consider the proportion of contrary events in a great number of instances, so we're taking a big sample, the issue, again, the issue is what do we do in the individual case? But well, we start with a big sample. Suppose, if our intention, therefore, is to continue the proportion of contrary events in a great number of instances, the images presented by our past experience must remain in their first form, which is italicized, and preserve their first proportions. Here's what he means. Suppose, for instance, I have found by long observation that of 20 ships which go to sea, only 19 return. Okay? So I have this sample of, of lots of cases I, I notice over a long period, I send out 20 ships, 19 return. Suppose I see at present 20 ships that leave the port. I transfer my past experience to the future and represent to myself 19 of these ships as returning safely, in safety, and one is perishing. Concerning this, there can be no difficulty. So all he's saying is that when I'm dealing with these collections of ships, 
then my expectations for the future are just straightforward. I just project the past, right? And so for a collection of 20 ships, what I found is that in the past, 19 returned. I send out a collection of 20. I expect that 19 will return. I don't have any particular expectation which one's going to sink, right? I mean, the, the claim is not that this one or that one will sink. It's just that 20 are going out, 19 are going to come back. Concerning this, there can be no difficulty. But as we frequently run over those several ideas of past events in order to form a judgment concerning one single event, right, not a collection, concerning one single event, which appears uncertain, this consideration must change the first form of our ideas and draw together the divided images presented by experience. Okay? Since tis to it, namely experience, we must refer the determination of that particular event upon which we reason. Many of these images are supposed to concur, right? That is, 19 of the images are of safely returning ships, and one is of a sunk ship. Many of these images are supposed to concur, and a superior number to concur on one side. These agreeing images unite together and render the idea more strong and lively, not only than a mere fiction of the imagination, but also than any idea which is supported by a lesser number of experiments. Each new experiment is as new as stroke of the pencil, which bestows an additional vivacity on the colors without either multiplying or enlarging the figure. Okay, so his idea is, he exactly has this puzzle, same puzzle. I want to assign a probability to an individual event. It's not even quite clear what that means. What is clear is what the number means, right? What does that number mean when I say the chance of this ship coming back is one out of 20, this individual ship? What is clear, what one out of 20 makes perfect sense as a description of a, an empirical frequency, and you project that, and projecting that empirical frequency from the past to the future, that's okay, right? But in this sense, what Hume's suggesting is that the, the judgments about individual events are parasitic on straightforward claims about empirical frequency, right? So when I say, I mean, it's not merely that this is the same number 0.5, right? Obviously, the point. This is a frequency of going to the right or to the left. Here's another perhaps way for the problem. So say in a system, I just assign to every row, left bouncing row or right bouncing row. Okay. You're gonna get the same type of result about measure one for positive. You mean if I, you mean, if we, we, I don't know, actually I don't know what you mean by your side. You mean you, you, you bevel the nails or something? Yeah. Do something so That's right. Or you can do a side type of piece That's or right. whatever. That's um, right. But getting the same result here in our living frequency of 0.5 isn't going to license us to take the, the probability of bouncing left. That's right. Why is that? Okay, because when we, when, when we start out by saying, I'm going to assign a probability of 0.5 to each individual pin, right, left. I also think that these probabilities are independent. Okay? That's also an assumption. That is, what I don't think is that, I might do that and think, look, at the very first bounce, which could go either way, the ball becomes charged, right? It either becomes a right bouncing ball or a left bouncing ball or something. Or it becomes either an odd or even ball, right? It either becomes one that always bounces to the right and the, you know, on the odd rows and to the left on the others. But no, what we do when we assign individual probabilities to the pins, we also assume, and this is part of what we mean, is that these are independent probabilities. So I can calculate the probability of this one going to the right and then going to the left by just multiplying the probability of it going to the right here by the probability of going to the left here. 
So that these, the, what that means is that, is that these, now we can, we can ask again a very clear question. For a particular sequence, are the bounces statistically independent of the, of the one succeeding bounces? That is, do the bounces on any row, are they statistically independent of the bounces on the following row? You ask that by asking, what is the long-term frequency of the sequences on succeeding rows, right, 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 left, left, right, left, left? If they're statistically independent, these ought to be 25, right? Each of these ought to happen 25% of the time. Okay? This is a property. This is a property. What we think is that this is also typical. Your system would not show these statistics. Right? They would be atypical statistics. So right? what you're missing from here is that in cases where we have no method of finding a correlation between bounces in different ways. That's right. This thing applies, but not otherwise. But I'm not sure what you mean by this thing. All I've said, all I've said is I have a strict definition of what I mean by typical behavior relative to, I did feed it at the beginning of measure. But it's just a definition. Claim, in this physical situation, typically the limiting frequency will be 0.5. Typically, bounces on succeeding rows will be statistically independent in this sense. Okay? Typically, bounces on rows that differ by a, by a space of 1 will be statistically independent, or a space of 2, or a space of 3, or any n. They'll be statistically independent. Right? These are a bunch of statistical properties, straightforward statistical properties of these trajectories. And I'm finding all of these things which are exactly the statistical predictions of a theory that assigns a probability of 0.5 to each pin and says they're all independent of each other, it will also predict exactly those sorts of frequencies. I mean, that's just a mathematical fact. Yeah? I'm just wondering if there's not a sort of more straightforward way to associate with each pin of 0.5. So uh, consider the ratio of the, the measure of, of, of trajectories that reach a pin uh, uh, and, and a thing goes left to the ratio, sorry, to, to the measure of trajectories that just reach the pin. Yes. Um, that's going to be yes. 0.5. Yes. Um, I'm not doing that. I'm doing something else. Okay, why not do that? Because what I want to do is define typical behavior. The, the point is, typical behavior is behavior that a single system can display. Okay? You, you have a number 0.5. If I ask, what is that number about? You're going to say, well, it's something about a collection of possible initial states. Your 0.5 is, as it were, a measure up here. Right? Your 0.5 is a measure that occurs up here. What you did was you say, I'm going to go back up here, and now instead of painting all the ones red that limit the 0.5, I'm going to paint all the ones red that go right. And I'm going to paint all the ones green that go left. And you're going to say, relative to this measure, 0.5 go this way, and, you know, at an individual pin, 0.5 go this way and 0.5 go that way. Right? Why don't I want to do that? Because what I'm about to tell you is that if you do it my way, 
it's kind of irrelevant what measure I put up here. The whole point is that this approach doesn't depend, in, except to, in a certain sense, a very small extent on the particular measure I put up. In what sense? Well, take any measure that is absolutely continuous. So I started with this nice measure, this nice flat measure over something. Someone might say, well, wait a minute. How did you pick the endpoints for this measure? You said the ball would either start between here and here. Couldn't it have started over here? Or maybe it should be thinner. Or you used a flat measure, which suggested all the points were equally likely. But maybe the guy is right-handed, and really the measure should look like that, right? Or maybe the measure should look like that. Or maybe he's more likely to put it in the middle and the measure should look like that, right? So as soon as you say, the, the precise details of this measure that I put up here are really important, then we can start to fight over why you use that one. But what's clear is because the only way that this measure came in was measure one and measure zero, right? Typical behavior is measure one. It means, if a behavior is typical relative to this measure, it'll also be typical relative to that one, or relative to that one, or pretty much relative to any, well, the technical thing is it's relative to any other measure that's absolutely continuous, which is just any measure that agrees on the set of measure zero. No, I, mean, I, see, I see that difference, but I wouldn't have thought you'd want that. I mean, suppose, I do as a matter of fact, it's always dropped on the left side. I don't know. the first pin, it always goes left. And then your thing is going to say, Oh, wait, 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 they're associating a point five. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So let me say a word. At the end of the day, you want to apply this model to the entire universe. And in this, in this analogy, the entire universe is only dropping one side. Okay, if there were a series, a collection, an empirical distribution of actual dropping events, Right? If that formed an empirical distribution, then you could perfectly well ask that you put a probability measure up on top that looks like it. Right? If you dropped it a million times and you know 900,000 times it was on the right or on the left, then you say, oh, don't use a flat distribution up here. Use one that's biased. And the reason for that is because you want to say, I want this measure to, as it were, be a good coarse-grained representation of this empirical distribution. Our whole problem, our whole conceptual problem, is that when we apply this thing to the entire universe, and we're going to the state of initial conditions for the entire universe at the Big Bang, it only happened once. I see what's going on. I didn't see where it was going. OK? No, so that's good, right? That's the, the, sort of the, the, the key to, to, to uh, Let me just, I mean, you're, you're just going to acknowledge that we're not going to disagree about this, but let me just interject for pedagogical reasons. Yeah. What you're calling the epsilonics you're going to deal with later yeah. are going to, it is going to, the discussion of those epsilonics is going to modify things you're saying now in, in what I might as well register is going to seem to me a very important way. Um, it's going to seem to you maybe not such an important Absolutely. Way. It's going to seem to me a very good. So people should keep that in mind. Okay. Go ahead. Right. Can I just clarify something earlier? So the behaviors we're assigning this Macaulay measure to, they're pathways through the entire system. There's no direct association with what happens when an event concerning the ball being a 2.14. There's no direct link there. 
Wait, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't. So we're talking repeat. about typical behaviors. I, I, I'm, I'm saying, right, describe a behavior, which is just, you know, just think of it as a, you know, a, right, a, a, something that's either true or false of any particular actual trajectory. Okay, the, the question and, concerned the behaviors. Yes. They're pathways through the entire system. They're not behaviors like um, going left on hitting pin number eight. No, no, that's a behavior. Sure. Right. That's just a, that if you ask me, did you just ask any question? Which, if I specify the entire trajectory, an entire single trajectory, ask any question that gets answered by that. So of course, no, whether it went right or left at pin eight gets answered by that. Sorry, I'm speaking. Um, the behaviors are counting as okay. So, so out of this thing, we've got a behavior we've got as typical: going left as often as going right. Yes. But that is not going to have any direct upshot for a, what's typical behavior on hitting a particular pin. There is no typical behavior on hitting right. a particular pin. Right. Right. That's the point of the definition. What you notice is that this does not ascribe, if you ask me what typically happens when you hit pin 8, the answer is nothing typically happens. There's no typical behavior associated with the road with a particular pin. There is typical behavior associated with the long-term frequency Long-term limiting frequency, okay? Right. Very simple but it's, it's just meant to help out with saying something about single events that happen only once. Well, I, see, I don't want to help. I mean, one of the reasons why I keep insisting on this is that it's a point at which you can see the difference between this approach and David's approach. As David says, his approach leads, you, leads to a mechanism which assigns a probability to any event you can describe. Like, will this thing go right or left when it hits point when it hits pin A? That was, you know, that's what the metaculus does. This thing doesn't do that. So going back to the weather example, I've got two models, one describes probability 40%, one describes yes. probability 30% of raining. Yes. It rains. Yes. Can we say anything about the models on the basis of that? Well, okay, so actually I was gonna talk about it. Let me say that. If you ask a meteorologist, of course the meteorologist will say no. He will say one day, right, one data point has exactly zero, right, has exactly zero. Uh, uh, and in fact, if you didn't say that, it's kind of a, well, I don't know. It, 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 it. Now, if you ask a Bayesian, now this is sort of subtle, right? If you ask a Bayesian, the Bayesian's going to say, well, sure, I can update, you know, the, 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 my, my models give me probabilities for individual events when an individual event occurs. I, Update by Bayesian conditionalization, and that will change the probabilities of my priors. And okay. we can up it to any finite number, a finite sequence we want, presumably, and we can up our percentages. That's that, that, that's right, and this is where some of the epsilonics and things are going to come in. Now, if, if you if we ask about actual, if we ask about the actual behavior of physicists, right? That is, one could say, I think there ought to be idealized Bayesian physicists who do. What I just said. They update on every event by Bayesian conditionalization. Okay. It is a matter of fact that actual physicists, I mean, we've seen that going on, the stuff about searching for the Higgs particle. What they say is stuff like, yeah, we can't say anything yet because we don't have a three sigma, right? We don't, our data is not three sigma. Or I can't say anything yet because my data isn't five sigma. Now you're going to worry about why they're picking three sigma or five sigma and stuff like that. Okay, but their actual behavior is I need a large data set. Not infinite, but large. Yeah. I hope not infinite, or we'll be waiting a long time for the results. I need a large data set before I draw any consequences. I draw any conclusions about whether one model is right or wrong. 
right? If you, if you tell me one guy, you know, his weather model says 40% chance of rain today, and the other guy says 30% chance of rain today, and today it either does or does not rain, and you ask me, who was just vindicated, right, by that data, a normal meteorologist will say no one, right? That data just isn't the kind of thing that you can use to test this theory. And if you thought from the beginning, as I said, what we're trying to explain are empirical frequencies, well, you don't really have them, right? I mean, one zero doesn't really count, especially when the numbers are 30%, 40%, right? I mean, you don't say 30 is closer to zero than 40, but you know, you're no, not. You know. I'm trying to understand, sort of, given the theory, what happens. So, again, a 30%, 40% is not important. We could have 99%, we can have 1%. And presumably, you can change your single event to sort of finite series of events. Mm -hmm. But does this mean that now the fact that I have a typicality for infinite? sequence of events is going to have some upshot? This is, okay. what, so this is what Tim is relegating to what he calls epsilon, right. which we're going to discuss later. Well, I'll, I'll give you that right now. There's a, there's a disagreement between us about whether the epsilonics discussion is important. Right. Okay. Let me do that. Yeah. Can I just ask, before you do that, can I just ask you to say something about the justification for this typical uh, effect independent? Because that seems super strong. I, I don't know, but again, with the, I'm not sure you the typicality claim. If you ask me, so there's a fact, there, again, there's a mathematical, if we had the actual dynamics here, there'd be a mathematical fact either that this sort of thing was typical or it isn't. If you're asking me for my justification for my belief that it is, uh, I would have to talk about the, the fact that the dynamics here is kind of very chaotic and the thing bounces around a lot of times. I mean, you, you might imagine if the, if, the, if the balls were sort of very sluggish and sort of funk down through this thing in a certain way, you might say, oh no, the ones that bounce off to the right, they come down and then, then they more often than not bounce off the next one, right? They're, 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 you, you might imagine the actual physics would, would not have this for rows that are, that, are, that are different by only one. You might think, well, it better be true for rows that differ by 100 or 1,000, right? It'd be really weird. It's hard to imagine a physics where the bouncing up here, you know, has is statistically is not statistically independent of the bouncing a hundred rows later. If you ask me, is it really plausible for the one row case? You might convince me it's not. I don't know. I have to look at it. That, that's going to be in fine details of the actual physics of the board. But if this thing is, is kind of you know vibrating around a lot and the thing is very chaotic looking dynamics, you could give plausibility arguments for why you'd expect even for the statistical independence to show up very quickly. You certainly expect it to show up. At, at, a, at a large distance, right? Okay, but you, you, you don't just need things like um, the system independence between rows. You need things like system independence between rows conditional on it having taken a certain path, and you need lots and lots of different system independence facts, right? I mean, just saying that um, uh, system independence of um, from one row to the next is not going to get you through the the nice probability distribution at the end that you want, right? But well, I don't know what you mean. There's no. I, I, I'm not, one thing you can do is set up one of these boards and get a Gaussian distribution at the bottom. This is an infinite board. It doesn't have a bottom. Right. So you know, there's no facts about the distribution at the bottom. There are facts here about limiting frequencies. Right. Right. But I mean, yeah. But I'm not. So, I'm not okay. sure what you're. I'm so, not, so, not so, 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 I think this is crossing Alison's point earlier on, which is like, if the, if the typicality claim is just about limiting frequencies. Well, that's, that's consistent with um, every board taking just one path all the way through. 
every ball. And actually, you mean every ball only and does take one. Oh, no, so so every, every ball you drop, wherever wherever you drop there, it all it, they, they all take exactly the same part. That's consistent with it's cons sure, but that's not what would happen in this case. Right. But what, who cares that it's consistent with that? I mean, I think it's because, because, you're, because you're trying to get um, you're, you're trying to get some nice intuitive um, uh, distribution out of it, right? Some nice intuitive probability distribution. And so if and so um, the point is. I mean, wait, 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 wait. stop, 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 stop. Just for a second, because we're really confused here. Okay. I could set up a system that has the feature you just gave. It would be something like this. We'd have a little catcher here, and it would guide this ball, and then here we'd have some things so that, you know, it had to go this way, and then it had to go that way, and so no matter where I started it, the thing would trace out a particular sequence. In that case, tracing out that sequence would be typical behavior for that system. Uh, right, and also it is not typical behavior for this system. It's just a different system, and and the differences between them would show up if you ask what's typical behavior for for the Galton board and what's typical behavior for your system. They have different typical behaviors. Right. Okay. But if, if all you've got so far is this typicality claim, then then I just want to know what's um, what probabilities what probabilities you can say about kind of the end states or about. Um, yeah, or, or, or about the the, 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 um, the distribution. Okay. Yeah. Well, let, 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 right, let me do this in two steps, and then you can come back and see if you're satisfied. Okay. Suppose now, forget the data. No actual board is infinite, right? We can do this analysis abstractly. But suppose I have a finite board. Okay. If I have a finite board, then in this sense, no behavior. No particular frequency will be typical, right? Because even even as it were the weird, the, the unusual ones that always you know jump to the right and end up way over here, they happen. There's gonna you expect that that to happen some actual observable number of times if you do this over and over again, right? So what do we do? Well, one thing we do is I'm going to now. I mean, I guess you want to the star there. When I say doing epsilonics, I mean it. Okay? Two forms of epsilonics here. I, in, a, in a finite system, I don't want to define typical behavior as requiring a set of measure one. But it does seem okay to define it as a set of one minus epsilon, where by epsilon, I really mean a very, you know, point zero 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 one. And this is where you come into these questions. Do we want three sigma? Do we want five sigma? Some small number, right? 0.2 ain't small in the sense of small I have in mind here, right? For the guys over at the Hadron Collider, right, you get an idea of what the epsilonics are. The other place I put epsilonics on, because even that, if, if there are an odd number of rows, then the frequency is never going to be 0.5, right? So I need another plus or minus delta. Another little epsilonic there. Okay? Another small number. Small in what sense? Well, small relative to the scale of a point five. So again, you know, presumably this is a limit within, you know, a hundredth or a thousandth or something. Again, better and better the smaller you can get. Right? You feel happier the smaller you get it, because then the behavior, the behavior is more precise. Right? It's more restrictive. Now it's clear that in a finite system, 
Once I put an epsilon here and a delta here, now again, I have a definition in itself. I mean, the original definition would work, it just turned out nothing is typical. But in a, in, a, in a finite system, I can have a definition like this, and again, certain behaviors can turn out to be typical. It's not no longer true, the, the, the thing that David's really worried about. In the infinite system, if it was typical with respect to some measure, it was typical with respect to any absolutely continuous measure. So that could go a very wide, easily characterizable, very wide collection of measures. And you're saying, if all you're doing is defining typicality, pick any one you like. Okay, nothing special. You might pick one, if one is easy to work with mathematically, pick that one. Why not? Okay? Once I put the epsilonics on, I can no longer say, if something turns out to be typical relative to flat measure, it will therefore be typical relative to any absolutely continuous measure. That's not true anymore. But what I will have to do to render a typical behavior atypical is, in a, an intuitive sense, really change the measure, right? I've really got to concentrate, just as before, really changing that concentrating positive measure on what was a set of measure zero, it now means concentrating, you know, the, the bad set, as it were, have measures, these small measures, delta and epsilon. But Tim, yeah. from what you were saying, it sounded like from what you were saying before, given that, given that we want to apply this cosmic group, like you said, yeah. given that there is, in fact, only one initial condition, yeah. there is no measure which is right or wrong about that. Right, correct. Even if it's sharply peaked. Right. So I don't understand why, I, I don't understand why moving to the epsilonics isn't a big conceptual sacrifice. Here. All right, so let, let me say a word about that. Okay. So I, now I'm going to say things that are not mathematically, I, I'm just trying to get conceptually what's going on. And the mathematics, all of this is mathematically well defined. Right. And we could ask, if a behavior is typical relative to this definition, how much would you, relative to a certain measure, you know, literally how much does the measure have to be fiddled around with to right. render it atypical? Right. Right. And, and we could sort of look at those and see, right. do those look like small changes or big changes? Right. Okay. right. The, the sense here is that the basic concept that you're using in this definition is not something as precise as a probability measure, which is really a fancy gadget, right? It's, it's assigning real numbers to all of these sets. It's rather a much more rough and ready distinction between very big and very small. But, okay? Yeah. But wait, let me say it. Good. The way I, you know, the, the way I, I, I try to convey this is the following. Suppose someone tells me, Tell me about the Sahara Desert. And I say, here's something about the Sahara Desert. It's mostly sand. And then the person comes back to me and they say, wait, are you measuring by volume? Are you measuring by weight? Are you measuring by surface area? Okay. And I say, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand the import of it's really mostly sand. If it turned out to, as it were, be mostly sand on one of those measures, but not on others of those measures that you're giving me, which are all kind of reasonable measures, reasonable ways you might go evaluating how much of something there is. If it turned out that they gave different judgments, then it's not mostly sand. 
right? It's the, the sense in which it's overwhelmingly mostly sand suggests that by any way of measuring that any rational person would come up with, unless they had a brief to invent the measure that had some weird properties, right? Like making, by my measure, the Sahara is mostly water because I concentrated my measure, you know, in this one oasis, right? All of the weight is there and I, you know, set the, 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 the measure, the weight for everything else is very near zero. Okay, and the only reason anybody would want to do that is if somehow they wanted to make the claim it's mostly water. But you'd say, no, that's crazy. Now, you know, terms crazy and nobody would do it. These are not technically defined terms. But I, I actually think they mean something. I think they mean something important. Overwhelmingly most, we were you know, sort of talking about overwhelmingly most of phase space or overwhelmingly most of the initial conditions. So the idea is what you really want, and again, this is not a technical notion, is simply a division of sets, not by giving them numbers, but some sets ought to count as overwhelmingly most. Some sets ought to count as only a little bit. And you only and you hope that none of the sets you're ever interested in are not in those two classes, right? What you hope is that the actual sets, the actual properties you ever worry about in physics, which pick out sets of initial conditions or pick out sets of points, turn out either to be in the big or the small class. Okay? And then essentially what happens if you say a behavior is typical if it happens in a, if, the, if the set of initial conditions that lead to it is, in a, is big. Okay? And that all this talk about probability measures is a much, much, much too mathematically precise object to capture this much more general intuitive notion. Now you can object. All right. <laughs> so, so um, um, first of all, if, if somebody wants to say, it seems to me there are two issues here. One is easy and one is more difficult to understand. If somebody wants to say, you know, I'm skeptical um, that there could ever be a scientifically well-justified claim of the form, the probability that the Dodgers are going to win the World Series in, in the year 3000 is exactly 78.279, okay? Um, and the metaculus is assigning a probability like that, and I just don't think that's meaningful, right. okay? Um, there seems to be an easy way to modify the mentaculus to accommodate intuitions like that. I don't know if I don't, if I, you know, I, I, I don't know what my opinion about that is. Um, I, can, I can imagine arguments in both directions. But if one wanted to, um, um, if one were convinced that it's crazy to talk like that, that is, that as you're saying, that the mentaculus in, is in this sense just over precise. It couldn't, it, it, right, it couldn't <laughs> represent, it couldn't represent claims that we could ever seriously have any good reason to believe. Okay? It's easy to modify the mentaculus to, to take account of intuitions like that. You just say, here's the deal. There isn't a probability measure over initial conditions. There's a set of probability measures right. over initial conditions. And 
Um, and the claims that our theory is committed to are those claims that all members of that set agree on. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and the theory is agnostic about claims that, 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 that members of that set disagree on. Right. But the view would be, oh, okay, so that seems like the easy part, okay? There's a harder part here, which was um, there seemed to be a sense that you were appealing to. Um, there seemed to be a sense that you have an intuition about that talking about probability measures over initial conditions of the universe, since in fact the universe has only one initial condition, right. has some smell of genuine incoherence about it, or meaninglessness about it, or something it, like that. No, 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 I mean that's too strong. It doesn't, this is just to come back to the other case. There are times when we use probability measures as approximate representations of actual frequencies. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, I, I, I really clearly understand what the empirical, well, as it were, it's, it's kind of a little fuzzy, but more or less the empirical content, right? The empirical constraint on using this probability measure rather than that one is, well, here's the actual empirical frequencies, right. and I want to kind of smooth guy right. that looks like that. Right. right. That's a little vague, but we understand what we're doing. Right. And when there's only one, that particular way of connecting the uh, appropriateness of the measure to the empirical facts, or the, the straightforward physical facts, when there's only one, that's just gone. Well, I don't understand. That's 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 it depends what the probabilities were, right? Like, 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 uh, like Allison was saying, even if you have only one of them, if you have a probability measure that says that's adamant about the chances of this. Oh yeah, you can put a you can put a delta small. function. Right, right, right. 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 But, but no, then no, all no. of the stuff no, you're doing goes out there. No, no, I don't mean a delta function. Okay. You have a probability measure that says the probability of this event is extremely small. Okay. And also, if you have any finite number of events, like Alice. No, wait, wait, I didn't. No, no, okay. no I lost you. If, what, if, if I, you have two weathermen, okay. Yeah. One says the chance of rain tomorrow is 99.9%. Yes. The other says the chance of rain tomorrow is 0. You know, 0. Right. 0.1%. So, and it rains. Yes. You say this is good for the first go. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, so. But notice, if you make those numbers big the way you did. Yeah. I can adjust my epsilonics and say, oh, according to this, this guy's theory, said it will typically rain tomorrow. I can say of that of an individual event. As I can say of an individual event of putting an ice cube but in a then, glass of water, but then, I'm, but, then, but then I'm not getting it. Okay? There was a clean point before we got to the epsilonics. Okay? That look, the, the, so I, I thought that. The attraction of the measure up here not mattering had to do with some puzzlement about what it would even mean to assign a measure to something like to assign something like a probability measure to the unique initial conditions of the universe. Okay, I thought maybe I'm misunderstanding the motivation here. I thought that that part of the motivation for getting away from having to assign a probability Okay. Um, was uh, maybe incoherent is too strong a word. There's something puzzling. Well, there's something one doesn't get. Sometimes there's something say, not kosher yeah. about assigning a probability distribution over. Let, let me just finish yeah, the sentence. Yeah. Over initial conditions of the universe. Okay. 
if, if you mean not kosher in some deep conceptual sense, then it seems like you're giving all that away once you adopt the Kabbalah. Oh, Kabbalah. Okay? okay. Yeah. Um, if you meant it in some other sense, then you've got to make it more clear to me. What, oh, I, I, if, if you just mean... If you, so, let, let me end up with a positive point, which I expect you'll dissent from, but I'm not sure, but I want to know what form the dissent takes. Yeah. Okay. If the worry is just, we could never have, we, we, we could never be justified in assigning a probability within, you know, uh, a I see. percentage point to the, to, the, to the Dodgers winning the World Series in the year 3000, one can say, oh, of course, we didn't, this was just the first version of the Mentaculus. There are fancier versions of the Mentaculus that use sets of probability distributions over initial conditions, but not sets, include, not sets that are all inclusive. Mm -hmm. Restricted sets of probability distributions mm -hmm. over initial conditions. And then you just say that the claim to theories committed to is the ones on which all those, all, every member of that set um, agrees. Good. But that seems like if you construe it that way, that seems like you are committed to the claim that 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 one can, in perfect, in some perfectly sensible way, talk about probability distributions over the unique initial conditions of the universe. So, I had thought that there was a a deep, I don't know if it's a worry about intelligibility or a conceptual worry. There was some deep philosophical worry about talking about probability distributions over the initial conditions of the universe. If that's true, I'm surprised that the epsilonics are so easy for you. Okay? But maybe that's not true. Maybe that wasn't the word. Right. So, 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 good. Good. Yeah. Good. so, um, so let me, let me kind of turn this around for a second. Sometimes, um, the way you present things, you say, well, at the end of the day, what I needed are two new, fundamental, law-like claims right. for this to work. Right. One, we all are happy with the past hypothesis, insofar as we're happy with it not mattering much or we're clear about what the parameters of the macroscopic right. description are. By the way, well, I'll talk about that later. At what yeah. level of detail the macroscopic description yeah, 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 should yeah. be given, we all agree that there's just a fact about what it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's a physical fact. Yeah. I, no, I, just, I, I had a thought in passing about the example you brought up about the steady-state theory. Um, um, I mean, of course, that's not a cosmology people take seriously yeah, 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 anymore, yeah. so on and so forth. But, but if we were to play that game, would there be a problem about construing the past hypothesis as a as a as a boundary condition at t equals minus infinity, like the radiation condition that we usually impose? That's a good question. Okay, that, that, that might be. I'd have to think about right, that. Right. Right. Forget it. Forget it. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, um, okay. So that piece, the past hypothesis, we're all on the same page about, good. and there is. The further question when we get to Sean, which we will presumably soon about, right. well, how about that? Can we, get a, can we embed Absolutely that in a bigger right. explanatory? Absolutely right. 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 And then the second piece is, is, is the statistical postulate, which for you is this measure. And you want to say it's just a physical, it's kind of a physical fact in the same yeah. way that the past hypothesis. Yeah. Now, my problem, part of my problem is, is, is to understand what kind of physical fact that is. Right. Okay. Right. And especially because, especially when it has this very detailed mathematical structure. 
Okay. No, but wait, I don't, I, I don't understand the second part, the especially part, okay? That is, if you say there's a puzzle about what kind of fact that could be, yeah. okay? I agree there's a puzzle. I think there's a good answer in, in Lewis's, you know, account of laws and so on and so forth, and Barry's going to talk about that next week. But I agree there's a conceptual right. puzzle there. I see that there's a conceptual puzzle there. Right. I don't see how the feeling of puzzlement that's there is at all alleviated by making the probability assignments a little more vague. Oh, but they're not a little more vague. I don't see how it's alleviated by making them a lot more vague. It's a conceptual puzzle. I, so it's a conceptual it, it, puzzle. But, but yeah. it, what, what I've been arguing here is that the main yeah. conceptual gadget yeah. that's being fed into this mechanism yeah. is just a distinction between very big and very small. Okay? But, but and that's, let me, very big and very small probabilities. No, no. Uh, not probability. What do you mean? Now we're back again. No. No. Okay. <laughs> very big and very small. Very yeah. big and very small no, sets of initial conditions. And somebody says, why the hell should I care about the size of the sets of initial conditions? Yeah. And, and, and and you say, no, all right, so this is where, and this is, again, exactly where we disagree and where your humanism is going to come in and my other thing has been coming in the right. whole time. Right. My sense is that suppose by this definition some behavior turns out to be typical. Okay? And someone says, huh, I wonder why it, you know, they, 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 they do this, and again, even we put the epsilonics on here so that if this has a, 100 rows on it, you're going to expect a frequency, you know, plus 0.5 plus or minus, you know, what will be typical will be the behavior, say, uh, of a frequency, you know, plus or minus 0.001 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay? And now I actually drop a single ball through, and I notice, hey, that ball actually did that. And I ask myself, can we go home now? Can we go home? Right. <laughs> and I say, we can go home. That's typical. Right. Right. Nothing. You know. You know. Everybody can. Yeah. Everybody. No. No. Rubber but everybody can go home. On the other hand, if it did something atypical, right? If yeah. I dropped this ball once yeah. and the actual limiting frequency was not here, yeah. you'd say you start. You, you, you'd say we better go look at that damn golden ball again. We've been okay? at this juncture before. Suppose somebody says, I mean, I know what the answer will be. I guess, but this is worth pointing out. Suppose somebody says, suppose there's one dumb guy in the class, like me, okay? And he says, humor me. Can we stay a few minutes longer, okay? Can you just fully spell out, okay? I don't feel like going home yet, okay? We're at this point, but I'm still confused. Can we spell it out explicitly, okay? Can we spell out with full explicitness those features of the way the world is, which I guess everybody else in the class already knew, so that you didn't have to state them explicitly, but just as a personal favor, can you spell out explicitly yes. what the features of the world are that, um, uh, that made it clear that this is the kind of thing that was going to happen? Okay? And you seem to be in the position of saying... So, th there are two criteria, one we've said enough, okay? The dumb guy's criterion is when we have a set of explicit claims about how the world is, which logically entails the explanation. Right, which we're not going to have. 
which we're not going to have in your case. Yeah. We are going to have it in my case, in, in the case of, no, say, logically entail. I'm not sure what does yours logically entail. That, the, that, that, that this kind of behavior was highly probable. But so that doesn't... No, 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 that's what I mean. No, 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 no. <laughs> no but you can't mean that. The, the, I can't the, observe that a behavior is highly probable. Good, I can observe good, a behavior. Good, 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 good. I agree, I agree. Um, um, good. Somebody, somebody wants to... Okay. So there are two. So there are. So there are two different stopping points. One guy wants you to spell it out a little more. Okay. I mean, we can always go to the complete my first day. Okay. We all then. Can. Then you know. Then then we've got. But we this. also would agree in this case, if if the if the if the limiting frequency were typical in this sense, right? But you went to the micro state. Yeah. yeah my yeah. sense is. You'd be missing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not that anything you say would be false. My sense too. But there's a sense of understanding or comprehension that you would have. A, you, you would miss out on. My sense too. My Good. sense too. Good. Um, um, so the the idea is, um, uh, the idea is, uh, uh, so let's set it up like this. Okay. Somebody says there there so there are. So there are two teachers trying to address the dumb thing. Okay, um, um, one teacher says, "Look, we've gotten to this point of no correlations or something like that. Uh, if you don't get it, I, I I don't know what to say. Okay, you're hopeless. You know, forget about it. Okay. Um, right, or since I'm the guy, let me write the guy. Okay. I say, look, I've just shown you that in any reasonable sense, overwhelmingly most of the initial conditions." That were compatible with how we set this situation up. Yeah. To this right. And then the dumb guy says, "But excuse me, what if it was one in one of those other initial conditions? Okay. Then it would have been something different." That's, and, and the guy and 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 and, and, the, and then the dumb guy says, "Good, but I mean those initial those other conditions are there. Why should I?" Right. We all and and you say, "I, I you know I can't help you. I mean you're really." And, Right. You're, so, you're, if you don't get this, I, I yes. really don't know what to say. And somebody, and the other teacher is willing to say, "Look, I'm willing to go one step further." Okay, those initial conditions were highly unlikely, either on the probability distribution over initial conditions or on uh, on all of the set of probability distributions over initial conditions um, that we're using. And you're going to say your your reaction is going to be, "Gee, I don't see what you've added there." Or I don't understand what that means. I mean, you're now in a, you're now in a position of having to explicate highly likely, mm -hmm. whereas I was in a position of just having to explicate overwhelmingly most. No, and I think overwhelmingly <laughs> most. Is no, you were in a position of having to explicate the relevance of overwhelmingly most to our expectation. About what was actually no, no, if, if, so maybe you're right. If, if, you, if, if you, you, you can make up, you know, hypothetical dumb guys with whatever cognitive deficits. <laughs> um, um, uh, you're right. If somebody says, I just can't see why pointing out that in any reasonable sense, overwhelmingly most of the initial conditions compatible with the way I set up the situation would lead to the behavior I just saw. Yeah. I don't see what relevance that has for me understanding the behavior I just saw. You're right. I'm just going to say, I'm sorry. I can't do anything. I mean, you're right. The, the, the sense of, of there being something explanatory here is the sense that identifying this as overwhelmingly most of them do that. Right. So, you know, no more puzzle about that one. 
Well, uh, and if, if someone says, I just don't see that, then you're right. Wait, wait, There's wait, nothing wait. I can do. I, I would be very surprised if they would be more satisfied no, by you saying, oh, but I'll call it likely. No, no, no. It's him. Right. Look, look. There, there's, a, there's a, like you said, you, didn't, you don't mean overwhelmingly most simplicity, okay? You mean overwhelmingly most by any reasonable person's definition of overwhelmingly most, yeah. okay? There was a sense before we got to the epsilonics when you meant overwhelmingly most in a more strict way than that. Okay. Yeah, I, um, um, here you mean over overwhelmingly most by any re, by, by anything that you're calling a reasonable measure. Okay. Now, I, I you know in a in a picture like the picture of the mentaculus or a modified picture of the mentaculus with a set of probability distributions, something like that, there's going to be among other things, okay, a a sort of natural selection account of why any reasonable person would agree that those are good measures of overwhelmingly most. Okay. But to just uh, a natural selection account? Sure. Okay, I think that's I I think that's a blank check you can't What why do you say that? This is a judgment the judgment I'm asking about are judgments about say sizes of, of, of points in phase space. Natural oh, no, 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 nothing no, 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 anybody no, would no, 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 but Tim, you were appealing to a question of what people would have intuitions about. Yeah. Talk about the Sahara Desert. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying whatever those intuitions are, okay, that's going to lead everybody to agree to a claim, oh, yes, I see which, I, I see that in overwhelmingly most by any reasonable definition, this behavior well, is going to be typical. Okay, you're appealing to some intuition that you think actual people well, have. Yeah, well, can this, let me say a word about that because this comes back to the naturalness of measures and things like that. Mm -hmm. So phase space, as we know, you start off with physical space. Mm -hmm. Now there certainly is a, a some kind of evolutionary story about why we will all agree, you know, right. that, that this is a smaller piece of physical space than that. Right. 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 So there is a natural. That's a physical measure. Right. right? That, and we're, we're we're all happy about. Both its physical status and the epistemic story of how we come to know right. what, what what the measure is. Right. And I mean, I guess you could say something very similar about about velocity space. I mean, it would be odd to say that there are a hell of a lot more velocities between zero and one mile an hour than there are between one mile an hour. And you can tell and you can tell a similar story about our expectations of where a particle is going to be in that space, given that all we know about it is that it, it is that it's somewhere in such and such a box. Okay, we have experience of that, much of which is hardwired into us uh, uh, evolutionarily. Maybe some of it is actually learned in the course of individual biographies. You have the same story about those. That is, look, here's 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 the here's the basic question. Okay, which I guess I don't really know your opinion on. Okay, whatever the restriction is on the measures of yeah. Is it an empirical fact about the world? Is it something, as it were, that needs to be added to our basic set of principles that we learn in the way we learned about the truth of ethicals MA or something like that? Or does it have a more a priori character, which seems to be what's being gestured towards when you talk about any reasonable person? I, I, okay. I, yeah. if, if, so, so here's the, you know, here's the question. If it's agreed 
okay, if, it, if I get you to write it in blood, okay, that it's, an, that it's an additional empirical claim, okay, then I really don't think there's a big disagreement between them. If, on the other hand, there's a constant feeling that by talking about any reasonable person or something like that, you're gesturing towards yes. something with a more absolute Good. character. Good. Okay. okay. I think after all the wrong word here. Okay. I'm going to try and answer that. Just for those of you keeping score at home. <laughs> the stuff about, instead of there being a single measure, maybe maybe you could use a set of measures here in the antagonist view, is again, one of these things of David moving in, in the, certainly in, in this direction. In this direction <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, could make him, I could make him move almost entirely in the following way. If I say, well, look, what counts as, as being appropriate to go into this set? Now, in the original case where we had sets of measure zero, it was easy to say what it was. It was, you know, you have, say, the flat one or whatever, and then all the absolutely continuous ones. I would say, I can even tell you when I put the epsilonics in what makes something appropriate. Namely, it agrees with respect to big and small in the sense that it, it gives rise to the same, <laughs> the same account of what's typical, right? Right. You know, right. so... In, in that case, you're going to say I've got a set of probability measures. What are they all? Agree no, no, no. On? Wait, I'm going to say they all agree on which sets of the relevant sets are big and which ones are small, wait, which is just what I was saying. What do I need to hang, this? Hang, hang on a yeah. second. The, the, there, I mean, I didn't think it was important to bring this up um, um, because because we were going to get into this epsilon. But if you want to say, um, um, even if it's even if in the infinite case where it's sets of measure one. Okay. Yeah. There's something additional that has to be said about, so what? To answer a question of the form, so what? There are these other things. I don't care what okay. their measures are. Yeah, no, How come they're not? We really? all agree, again, right. and, and now just quoting Shelley, there's the good set and the right. bad set. Right. No amount of jawboning will make right. the bad set go right. away. Right. 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 Okay. And if, if, so, if your guy is not going to be satisfied unless you, unless you make the bad set literally physically go away, he's never going to be satisfied. But, so, Tim, am I going to give an answer to my question about whether it's an additional yes. basic yes. postulate? Yes, okay. you are. But what's the answer? The answer is this. <laughs> when you say it looks a priori to me, yeah. I would say this. It's not... It, it's not a priori in the following sense. Suppose we're talking about relative sizes of sets of points in phase space. Mm -hmm. okay? And the, rel the claim is the relevant thing here is a kind of judgment that some sets are big and some sets are small. Mm -hmm. That one, in just learning what phase space is and understanding and doing the physics, just the regular dynamics, before we worry about statistical mechanics, before we worry about applying this to any statistical gadget, such a person would make judgments about some of these sets being big and some of these small. Now, that's not a priori in the sense that I came born with it, right? right. It, it, is, it, it comes from familiarity with the dynamics yeah, and familiarity with physics. I mean, is there a posit over and above the dynamics and the past? If I, I mean, if I were to Logically, say, it's a kind of, I'm not sure what to say. If I say, look, it's a kind of physical fact that this is a big set. No, I don't think that what, what, what is it? that the sets that count as big by this criterion are, are the ones, you know, that, 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 here's the deal. What we're all looking for here, okay, is an excuse to neglect the bad state, okay? Informing yeah. our expectations, right. okay? Well, That's what everybody's after here. 
I'm not going to agree with that quite. I, I, that is, you're more focused on expectations than I am. I'm more focused on explanations rather than Okay. I mean, you were the one who was linking, who was linking explanations with puzzlement and, and that is the new right, explanation. Okay. I, 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 I'm I think sure. you mean, you, you mean guys like predictions. I'm not worried about predictions here. So much. I haven't been focused on how this. I'm not sure how this. My only claim is that in, in a case like this, if the actual observed behavior, I'm not right. even saying what you should expect. Right. If the actual observed behavior is typical, you feel like your explanatory work is done. That's the main claim. That's not right. a claim about what you should expect. It just, no, on the surface grammar of it, it isn't. Right, 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 right. I just want to make sure I'm trying to understand what difference this makes. Um, but, I mean, it's a bit about, because you did it in terms of neglect. And right. there's a certain sense of neglect in which you realize you can't neglect the bad side. And I say the bad side is there, it's physically possible, right? And so on. Um, that's why I'm not sure what Let's you meant by neglect. Here's what I mean by I, neglect. I, I think what you meant was for the purposes of prediction, I didn't here's, here's what I mean by neglect. We're, we're looking for a reason to reassure ourselves in your language that the existence of the bad states, that the physical possibility of the bad states doesn't spoil the explanation. Right. Okay? It good or not. Good. Good, good, good. That's what we're both looking for. Right. Okay? That's what everybody, that's what statistical mechanics is looking for. Right. Okay? A way of making it clear that the physical possibility of the bad states right. doesn't spoil the explanation. Right. Okay? I can put this in terms of expectation, too. You want to put in terms of explanation? Mishka failed on this Okay? Uh, uh, put it in terms of explanation. Um, um, it, the, the, the bad states don't spoil the explanation. Right. Question. Okay? Um, does it somehow follow from the dynamics and the past hypothesis and so on and so forth that, uh, that the physical possibility of the bad states don't spoil the explanation? That's what I'm calling the a priori approach. Or does it require a separate posit about the way the world is, over and above the dynamics and the past hypothesis, to make it clear that the physical possibility so, of the bad states don't spoil the explanation? So, uh, That's the question. You, you you've given me a, a, an alternative, but I'm not sure which side this lands on, which is why I'm not sure this, is a, uh, this may be a false dilemma. Uh -huh. So by saying, look, the, the, the thing... That, ex that, that ends the explanatory, the set of explanatory demands yeah. is the observation that the behavior was typical. This is the claim. Yeah. The behavior being typical is explicated in terms of overwhelmingly most of the initial conditions. By one of these measures. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is, the, is, the the set of, is the set of appropriate measures to use there right. a new positive? Over and above, a new I, about the way the world is over and above the dynamics and the past hypothesis. I, 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 the, the sense I was trying to give you is I wouldn't think of it as a new good. It's, it's the same, in, in any case, it is the identically same judgment about big and small that you would form if all you've been doing your whole life was studying the dynamics and not giving a thought to using this for this purpose. Okay? Let me put it that way. I think that's true. The, the sense in which I think it's natural and straightforward and seems explanatory. I'm not if, sure. if I only came up with this measure, right. when I tried to embed no, I understand. I, 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 okay? 
But but you mean the natural history? Is that that we or you're not? I know what this. The is. natural history, the way we came up with this measure, is relevant to deciding its metaphysical status. It's it's relevant. Look, whether when you appeal to X right. in explaining Ooh, why, yeah. you only arrived at X by carefully examining Y and mm-hmm. backforming X. Mm-hmm. Someone might say, well, that's not a very good explanation because you guys were just you just. Sh- all the funny features of Y have just been now transported mm-hmm. back to X. Mm-hmm. But if X was sitting there independently, right? If X was there without a thought to Y, and you notice in terms of X, you can account for Y. Yeah, I think that's where you think you've got an explanation. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, this was good. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I mean, okay, that's enough for today. <laughs> okay, so. Barry's going to be our guest speaker. Do we have right. Now, look, we I'm so sorry. I understand that several people showed up here last week, which is which is awful, and just didn't find a classroom. Um, I thought we had announced. We did announce. We did announce it. And I, I, I guess it's just by way of saying I'm really sorry um, um, if that happened to people, especially if it was due to our neglect in making it sufficiently clear. Um, but next week we're back at NYU. Barry will be there. Um, that's a good question. Barry hasn't informed me of anything he'd like everybody to read, but I will call him today and ask him to send something if he wants everybody to read it, and we can put it on the website. Right, eighty dollars. Yeah. 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 Yeah.